You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's a podcast where we talk about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. In today's episode, we'll move to our new format where we spend the beginning of the episode talking about the week's journal articles, the very best of the best from the medical journals. Then we'll move in the second half to an interview with a respected guest. Today's guest is Dr. Andre Vandross. He's a community hematologist-oncologist who works in the UCLA Cancer Network, and we're going to be talking about Twitter and shared decision-making. I hope you find it enjoyable. But first, let's turn to the top articles. Now, it's never easy to pick just a few articles to discuss from the week in review, but I'm going to have to do it on this show. Um, So I wanted to start you off with two very interesting viewpoints. Let's start with the one on real-world evidence. Now, real-world evidence is a bit of a buzzword, in part because of the 21st Century Cures Bill, which permits manufacturers to seek drug approval based on outcomes that were derived in the real world through observational data uh, that occurred from products being used uh, by definition for purposes for which they were not approved, right? So you couldn't get a drug approval for a real-world indication uh, unless that drug or device were used off-label for that indication uh, and you accumulated or accrued data. Um, And this is a take on that based on Janet Woodcock and colleagues from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Um, And they say a bunch of things that I like uh, and a bunch of things that I don't like. So let's take a close look at this viewpoint. The opening. For hundreds of years, the development of new medical treatments relied on real-world experience. Discoveries such as citrus fruit curing scurvy described in the 1700s or insulin as a treatment for diabetes in the 1920s long preceded the advent of the modern clinical trial. So here the authors make an astute point, which is that even though um, and even before we had randomized controlled trials, we still had some things in biomedicine that we learned were effective um, without those studies. Um, You don't need a randomized trial to find something effective. The point goes. Um, So I think there are a couple things wrong with this statement. One is they do a bit of a disservice uh, to Mr. Lind, uh, uh, who actually did do controlled studies for for scurvy, uh, though they were not randomized. Uh, The second thing that's a bit disingenuous is that they've picked two of the most promising examples um, in the era before routine clinical trials, um, and they've left out mm, a couple thousand of the things we tried that didn't work, uh, the trepanations of the world, the bloodletting of the world, um, the useless garbage uh, that fell into favor merely because anecdote is incredibly misleading. So they left out the useless garbage part. And it's difficult, if not impossible, um, to know the ratio of practices that actually do what you think they do and practices that um, merely have bioplausibility, merely make us feel good, and merely, um, you know, deceive the practitioner. Um, But don't be surprised if the ratio is, you know, 999 useless practices to one um, or 99 useless practices to one. Things that actually work were likely few and far between in this era, and and that's really what they're missing. All right, the next quote from their article. Randomization and blinding became the gold standard for determining the effect of treatment with strict protocols 
protocol-specified definition of eligible patients, populations studied began to diverge from patients encountered in clinical practice. Patients with wider range of disease severity and age, taking a broader range of concomitant medications, and with more and varying comorbidities were not as well represented in clinical trials. Okay, here the authors are doing what many people do, which is they're faulting randomized trials um, for using patient populations that do not reflect broader America. And in fact, I also fault these trials for this. Um, And they're kind of blaming randomized trials for that. Um, I hate this argument, okay? Um, It is not the fault of randomization that we have decided to focus unyieldingly on idealized efficacy trials over pragmatic effectiveness trials. That's not the fault of randomization. I'll give you an analogy for this. Um, Everyone who has flown on United Airlines, not everyone, but many people who flown on United Airlines will conclude it is a miserable flying experience, okay? But not a single person um, would credibly say that we should throw away the airplane. Nobody blames United Airlines' performance on the Boeing 747 that United Airlines has bought and put too many seats in. Okay, it's not the fault of the airplane. Similarly, just because we have conducted and focused on bureaucratic, overly costly, idealized efficacy trials, that is not the fault of the randomized study. It's not randomization's fault. We could have done different randomized trials. It's not the airplane's fault that United Airlines put too many rows in it. Okay, this is a uh, this is the part of the argument that I don't like. Okay, next, next, next quote. In addition, FDA regulations have long recognized that historical controls taken from practice settings can be used as reference groups in single intervention group treatment studies that provide substantial evidence of effectiveness. For example, when the course of the disease is predictable, like certain rare, can- certain rare diseases and cancers, and the effect of the drug is substantial. Okay, um, come on, people. you've kind of glossed over one of the major milestones of evidence-based medicine, which is the recognition that historically controlled data often inflates the benefit of therapies that truly do not work. Um, In a seminal paper by Sachs and colleagues from the early 1980s, we learned that when historical controlled data and randomized data existed for the same clinical question, something like 70% of historical controlled studies were positive, i.e. showed that the treatment was effective, but that was only validated in 20% of subsequent randomized studies. And the second thing is, you know, the, the natural history of diseases is predictable, um, you know, that's not always the case. Um, that's particularly not always the case for a complex heterogeneous condition like cancer. And that is especially not the case when your clinical protocol is doing everything possible to inject massive selection bias in the patients on your protocol. For instance, If your protocol has a very long waiting list and every time you put a new patient on the protocol, it happens at an irregular time interval and you often have to go deep into the deep into the wait list to get the patient that meets your inclusion criteria, what you're doing is really setting up a a system to choose indolent biology and to put preferentially indolent biology into your clinical study. And when you start to look at treatments that are only conducted at certain specialized cancer centers where patients have to be able to relocate through their own funds and resources and and family support, social support, um, 
and you add in a wait list with a very long wait time and this, you know, random process by which patients are pulled off the wait list onto your protocol, um, you know, what you have is a recipe for massive selection bias. Um, and some of these elements, perhaps not all, but some are present in these CAR-T studies. Um, and then you're asked to make a comparison to very selected patients on a very well-regimented protocol against natural history that often occurred in unselected patients um, out in the real world. And you find that this comparison is a very tenuous and difficult thing to do. So no, you know, I strongly disagree that it has been well recognized that historical controls are so wonderful. Okay. Um, Next point. Uh, the authors write, randomization implemented in the setting of clinical care may result in broader inclusion of patients and facilitate observation of patients in their everyday clinical environment. Um, these trials may include pragmatic features that seek to mimic implementation of an intervention in routine clinical practice. Okay, so here the authors are talking about the possibility, the need for pragmatic clinical trials. Okay, hats off, uh, credit where credit is due. This is good news. Pragmatic, randomized control trials is a very reasonable thing to pursue. It is just a shame that the 21st Century Cures Bill um, puts undue emphasis on observational data, uh, likely for good reason. Um, finally, uh, I want to talk about the last uh, the last thing that kind of jumped out at me from this paper. Um, quote: As part of our as part of this effort, the FDA is funding a study to explore whether observational methods can be used to replicate the results of approximately 30 clinical trials designed to provide evidence about the effectiveness of a drug. This project will assist the FDA in understanding how observational methods can be applied to address questions involving drug effectiveness. So I would say, this is not a bad idea. If you have a hypothesis that we can use observational methods to predict clinical trial results, it makes perfect sense to try to validate that in a in a smaller set of trials. Uh, instead of 30, I might have preferred 100 or 200, uh, so we can quibble about the number. Uh, but the but the idea is reasonable. But but here's the big but: you better you better pre-register your observational methodology and publish your observational trial protocol before you ever lay one finger on that data to analyze it. I do not want to see you publishing an observational study that replicates a trial after you've had a chance to look at the data and run some preliminary analysis. You have to pre-specify this, okay? Once the desired result is known, anyone can go to any observational data set and pick the right variables to adjust for to produce the desired result. The challenge is, is, is if you can pre-specify that and have a reproducible, reliable way. So I look forward to reading the FDA's protocol long before they tell me the results of this study, uh, because unless that protocol is publicly available um, and transparent, I think people will wonder about such, an, such a process. So let me shift gears and talk about the second uh, viewpoint I want to talk about. This is entitled Promoting Patient Interests in Implementing the Federal Right to Try Act. It's by Holly Fernandez Lynch, Patty Zettler, and Amit Sarpatuari. Now, I got to say, this is a very clever paper. Um, it's really well done. I give it my award for turning lemons into lemonade because, as many listeners may know, I think the right to try bill is a bad bill. I think it's a disingenuous bill that doesn't really help patients and actually serves to empower the industry and depower or to, uh, or to rob of power um, the regulatory agency. I think that's its true goal is to thwart the regulatory agency. Um, 
And these authors likely feel the same way. I think they're not fans of the right to try bill. But what makes them very clever is that they're putting forward in this paper a set of things that the FDA can do to take a bad bill and make it less bad, to try to mitigate the harm of this bill. And I think their proposals are reasonable. They're in line with the law. They're extremely clever. The FDA should do them right away post-haste. And I want to just run through their things real quick with you because I think they're kind of interesting. One. Don't let right to try hinder ongoing clinical trials. So the right to try bill will basically remove the FDA from a sort of compassionate use process where uh, if a patient wants to take a certain drug that's in clinical testing and the company agrees to give it to the patient, the company can give it to the patient and sell it to them at the price of manufacturing that product. Um, in the old days, uh, until very recently rather, um, you know, it would get the additional blessing of the FDA. The FDA granted 99.9% of requests. Ergo, the FDA was never the barrier here, um, although often the company chose not to give their product for, um, you know, all sorts of reasons. Uh, and that was the real issue, and the right to try bill does nothing to change that problem. Um, but nevertheless, um, it's here. It's been signed into law. Um, here what the authors propose is that the right to try bill, according to the law, is for patients who are unable to participate in clinical trials. But what does that mean? The authors say um, the FDA can define that in a very clear way. If you live within the geographic vicinity of a clinical trial um, for your condition, and if you are otherwise eligible for the clinical trial, you should not be allowed to use the right to try pathway and enroll on the trial instead. And, and the right to try should only be eligible useful for patients outside that vicinity who are ineligible for the trial. This is a very clever framing of the issue. Um, what this does is this will prevent the right to try legislation from thwarting, from actively subverting ongoing clinical trials that seek to do what we ought to be doing, which is clarify whether or not these products actually improve patient outcomes. Okay, so that's the key thing. And and their proposal will, will keep that, keep that, in, keep, keep the right to try from thwarting trials. The second rule, don't let right to try be used for drugs that are on a shelf somewhere collecting dust. Let right to try be used for drugs that are actively being developed. So the FDA is allowed to clarify what active development means, and the authors here propose um, that the phase one study should have been conducted, and it should permit the design of a well-controlled, scientifically valid phase two trial, and the sponsor should have submitted a phase two protocol to its IND application file. This is a very clever point. Um, here what the authors are saying is um, don't let companies that have done phase one trials long ago and have really decided not to pursue these compounds because they don't appear to be that promising um, from using the right to try um, to avoid FDA approval. Um, only allow right to try for drugs that are really being pursued in clinical development, which will be the most promising drugs, you know. Um, there's there's data that comes from John Yonides, a science paper many years ago that kind of suggests that's the case. Um, the third rule they have is the FDA has the legal authority to collect information about who is using these right-to-try drugs, their demographics, and how much they are charged. This is critical. Companies are legally allowed through the right-to-try legislation to charge patients, um, you know, their costs for manufacturing the product, but they're not supposed to be using this pathway as a way to 
keep themselves profitable, to raise revenue. Um, although one wonders that unscrupulous players in the biotechnology space will use right to try as a way to continue to fund themselves, and thus, without FDA approval, may push and market insofar as is possible their products to vulnerable patient populations and collect money from the use of right to try. And 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 they're asking that the FDA collect that information so that we can detect this at the, the earliest sign of this behavior. Finally, um, they suggest we review the expanded access procedures and make that as streamlined as possible. Um, this is one of the existing pathways by which patients can already gain access to investigational agents, of which the FDA has granted 99.9% of approvals uh, and has never really been the barrier. And they're saying, can you make that faster and even more streamlined? And I think that would be a boon uh, in this space and be much better um, than the right to try itself. Um, the authors uh, have this quote in the article that I want to close with, which is that enforcing the statutory requirement that manufacturers may charge only for the direct cost of their drugs under right to try may also help to deter those who would seek to exploit vulnerable patients. And I think this is such an important quote. Um, we cannot allow the right to try to be used to create a black market, essentially, um, where vulnerable patients are preyed upon by companies that operate exclusively through revenue derived from right to try. That's not the intent of the law. No one would think that would be a good purpose for the law. Um, the intent of the law I believe is to subvert the regulatory state, uh, and I think um, there's some quotes in the public space that suggest that's true. Whether or not it actually helps patients, I think, is a big question mark, um, uh, and there are lots of reasons to doubt it does. Um, so overall, I think this is an excellent paper. All right, and now we move to the main event. New England Journal of Medicine study, telazoparabin patients with advanced breast cancer and a germline BRCA mutation. This is, uh, this isn't olaparib, this is telazoparib, so it's not olaparib. You've heard of olaparib in advanced breast cancer and germline BRCA, this is telazoparib. <laughs> Um, but it's totally different. I mean, it's totally different. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, of course. I, I think that this drug and this trial actually captures everything that's wrong, nearly everything that's wrong in modern medical oncology and nearly everything that needs reform. Okay, so let's start with at the top. One, this isn't just a Me Too drug. This isn't just another PARP inhibitor in germline BRCA mutation breast cancer patients. It is a cookie cutter trial. We literally had this trial with Olaparib in the New England Journal. That trial had a hazard ratio for the surrogate primary endpoint of progression-free survival of 0.54. It's 0.58. Um, sorry, this is 0.54, and it was 0.58 in the Olympiad trial, the Olaparib study. Um, virtually the same hazard ratio, very similar control arm, very similar population. Okay, two. Um, there'll be some people out there listening to this who say, look, it's good that we get more of the same drug in the same space. Competition is what lowers drug prices. And I think there may be some truth to that generally in, in the health policy space. But I will ask those people to show me that there's some truth to that in the cancer drug space. Um, nilotinib, disatinib, imatinib, basutinib, panatinib. Uh, how, did, how did competition lower prices there? Uh, it wasn't until imatinib became generic that we saw any price reduction. How about pazopinib, sunitinib, serafinib, exitinib, lenvantinib, cabozantinib, nivolumab, ipilimumab, everlimus, and temsorolimus in RCC. Again, not a hint that competition has lowered prices. And finally, ribocyclib, abemocyclib, and palbocyclib. Not a hint that prices have fallen. So I think, you know, it's easy to say competition lowers prices, and that may be true. 
um, in healthcare in general. But in the cancer drug space, we really have not seen it. And if somebody has, you know, other examples, please email us at the podcast. I'd be curious to know. So competition may lower prices somewhere on God's green earth, but it doesn't seem to do so here in cancer medicine. Okay, what else don't I like about this study? The primary endpoint is a surrogate endpoint. It's a surrogate endpoint, and overall survival, which is an endpoint that's patient-centered, that's important in and of itself, it was not improved. So you have a breast cancer trial where PFS is improved and OS is not improved. That is very similar to another drug we used to have in breast cancer called bevacizumab, except bevacizumab was revoked for market because we felt that PFS in the absence of OS was not meaningful. Um, but now we no longer feel that way. And we have some drugs like everolimus and eximestane, everolimus in combination with eximestane and bolero, where it's PFS and not OS, and we're not doing anything about it. Now, um, you know, we, we accept those drugs. Uh, they're priced a little differently these days. Um, the other thing I want to mention here is that this is a lethal disease. This is a very lethal cancer. I mean, I think in cancer medicine, we often contrast breast cancer with even more lethal conditions, perhaps like pancreatic cancer. Um, but this is a lethal disease across all of biomedicine. In less than two years, half of these women in both arms were dead. There's a median survival of less than two years in this trial. Um, this is lethal. And when you have a lethal condition um, and you have drugs that cost a fortune, those drugs should aspire to improve survival and not merely progression-free survival. And I wish to use an analogy to kind of illustrate how I think our brains in oncology are being rewired in a, in a not very helpful way to patients. Um, let's turn to our friends in cardiology. Now in cardiology, if they had a way to get a set of patients with heart failure who have a median survival of less than two years, and they made a new drug, and they found that that drug did not improve survival in that patient group, but it delayed the time until the ejection fraction got 20% worse. Um, and somebody said, you know, we're going to approve this drug and charge a, and we're charge $100,000 per year of treatment of this drug. I think our colleagues in cardiology would say, are you out of your mind? Um, I want drugs that improve survival, especially in highly lethal conditions. Okay, so I don't think they would accept it. Um, but in oncology, it has become the norm to say that when a survival is less than two years, you know, we can't even ask for OS benefit. We can only ask for PFS. So I would say, oncologists, I beg you, raise your bar for the sake of our patients. Let's raise the bar. When you have a lethal condition, overall survival is the only acceptable standard for new drugs. We have to improve survival for these patients. It's not enough to say PFS, no OS. Okay. Um, Bishal. Uh, Gaiwala from Harvard University um, wrote a really interesting commentary in eCancer Medicine about Olympiad. Um, he joked online that you could pretty much copy and paste um, telazoparib with olaparib and you could have the same commentary. And, I, and I'll give you some quotes from his commentary because I thought they really hit the nail on the head. One, he points out that this is, you know, that not only are we using PFS instead of OS, but the correlation for PFS and OS in metastatic breast cancer is poor. And he cites a paper that I did a couple years ago with some colleagues from the National Cancer Institute where we did an umbrella meta-analysis of surrogate validation studies. And we found the correlation between PFS and OS, um, it varies based on the tumor, line, and setting. Uh, for instance, DFS in colorectal cancer adjuvant trials is an excellent predictor of o subsequent OS. Um, but PFS in metastatic first-line breast cancer is a poor predictor of OS. Um, but Bishal writes this very nicely, quote, however, whether the PFS benefit correlates with OS is a moot point here because the OS results are already available. 
yeah, you know the OS is not improved. It's been directly measured. You don't need to postulate whether or not it would be improved. Okay, six. Um, this is my sixth point, and I'll stop reading those numbers because I haven't been numbering so far. Um, you know, when somebody looks at this trial and says there's no OS benefit, somebody might say, well, that's because everyone crossed over to PARP inhibitors. Uh, that just can't be the case here because only a pittance of patients on the control arm got other PARP inhibitors. Uh, it was about 18%. I don't think that's enough to drive this, the lack of OS benefit here. It's not massive crossover. Um, the other point I want to make here, this is yet another trial where the protocol prevents patients from getting the appropriate standard of care control arm, which is really platinum therapy. Investigator's choice is, is broadcast all over this paper, but it's not really an investigator's free choice. You have to choose between sapecitabine, aribulin, gem, and vinorelbine, uh, but you're not allowed platinum. And um, of course, you previously had gotten a taxane or um, you know an anthracycline, but it doesn't say how long ago and whether or not some doctors might wish to rechallenge with taxane. You know that's an open question as well. But at a minimum, we know platinum has a superb PathCR rate in in this particular cancer. Um, we have to do better in oncology. We can't have these straw man control arms. Um, you know, somebody would say if platinum had been in the control arm, maybe OS would have been different. It might have been going the other direction. Um, this is not a helpful trial when you go into this trial and the majority of patients have never seen platinum. Um, and platinum is thought to be the most active agent in this setting. Um, when you have an investigator's choice, you got to give them a free choice. You can't restrict the choice like this. I, I, I don't like that. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I honestly think it's like saying, uh, you know, you go to the bookstore and I tell you, look, you can buy any book you want in Barnes & Noble. I'm paying. Uh, but you got to find it in that bargain bin outside in front of the store. Um, you know, uh, I'm talking about those books where the price sticker has like four levels of sticker. So you see, keep falling and falling and falling. Okay, it's not it's not picking any book in the store. And by the way, if I ever find Ending Medical Reversal in one of these boxes, I'm coming for you. Whoever put it in that box. Um, I'm not going to be happy about that. Let's look at the toxicity here. Any grade fatigue, any grade nausea, any grade headache, worse with the PARP inhibitor. PARP inhibitor had more hematologic side effects than chemotherapy. But you know, it's difficult to compare side effects here because we're comparing side effects of four drugs pooled together, uh, used in some ratio, um, against the PARP inhibitor. Um, you know, but it's not intuitively clear that you're avoiding chemotherapy side effects when you're having more hematologic side effects than chemotherapy. Um, Quality of life is purportedly better in this study. That's the secondary exploratory subgroup analysis. When people start talking about exploratory endpoints, sorry, exploratory endpoint, not subgroup, um, I think we have to be cautious. An exploratory endpoint in a clinical trial is like um, pictures you post on Facebook. You get to post the pictures that you think are most flattering. There is a selection bias. You're not posting the average picture you've been taken in. And so that's the very reason why someone's Facebook profile picture is generally more flattering than their DMV picture. Okay, the DMV picture is the primary endpoint. You get one look at the data, you get one chance right there in the DMV to take the photo. But your Facebook profile picture, you have unlimited multiplicity to take as many pictures as you want and you pick the best one. And here, they're highlighting the quality of life was better, uh, but had it not been better, you would probably not be hearing about too much about it. And I want you to look real closely at how it's better. 
Okay, health-related quality of life is better according to the EORTC scale that took longer to deteriorate. So I want you to look up this scale, find the questionnaire, look at the questions, find out how many points you have to lose before it's scored as deterioration. And then if you're really a critical thinker and you really want to push your noggin, I would say look at the patients at risk under the Kaplan-Meier curve in the supplement and look at the number of events that are actually scored and and look at the fact that both of those curves have hit the median. And I will show it, I will tell you, the number of events scored is few and far between, far fewer than the PFS events. And this curve looks like there's a whole lot of censoring going on here. And I wanna say, um, this endpoint should be taken with great caution. And I wanna say a whole bunch of other things, but I can't say those other things because my postdoc is working on a paper on quality of life that is gonna be so good so clever, um, and I don't want to scoop my postdoc. And for that reason, I'm going to be a little bit vague here, and I'll lead a horse to water, um, but I can't get him to drink. Um, so take a close look at that quality of life scale, and um, don't settle for what so many people settle for, which is, oh, quality of life is better. I read the one sentence in the paper. You can't just read one sentence. you got to look at the data. Look at the number of patients at risk. Look at the number of events. Look at the curve over time. Count how many people are censored at every time interval. Ask yourself if that makes sense. Compare it against the PFS curves. Do some work. Okay, reading papers in 2018 is not about reading the takeaway point. You're not going to learn it from a tweet by the journal. You got to dig in. You got to dig in deep. Oh, and here's the other thing I wanted to say. Um, I'm very pleased that the authors thank the patients and their families in the in the final statement of the manuscript. We thank the patients and their families. Good. Uh, of course, thanks of all trials goes to patients. Um, but here's where I, I get a little pause. Uh, we thank X, Y, and Z, quote, for medical writing and editorial assistance with an earlier version of the manuscript, end quote. Um, trialists, enough with the medical writers. Okay, write your own papers. Your name is on the paper. You got to write your own paper. You cannot use other people to write your paper. Um, and if you want to use other people to write their paper, credit them. Make them the first author, okay? That, that's fine, too. Um, but you can't be first author and not write your own papers. And I don't know who wrote what here, okay? It's never very, very clear. But I will say, we need to move past medical writers. We have to write our own papers. Th this, is, this is part of the job. Um, so I disagree with that. Um, and, and if you want to read more about that, I think Vincent Rajkumar has had some great tweets about it and has written about it in some other places. Okay. The next thing I want to say, Olaparib, don't forget, has a hefty monthly price tag. It's over $12,000. So one can only wonder what this drug has cost. And all those people out there who will tell me competition with lower prices, let's see. Let's see how low it comes, okay? But Olaparib is $12,000 a month. $12,000 a month for a drug that does not improve overall survival. Um, that is a high price to pay. And if this were a cardiology drug and this were heart failure, and the only thing the drug did was delay the time until the EF got 15% worse or 20% worse, people's heads would explode. Okay, so I want to end with the quote that um, Bashal had in his, in his blog. In conclusion, although Olaparib seems to have won the gold with Olympiad, patients have not. Patients deserve a real gold. We need to stop celebrating a gold-plated bronze as a true gold uh, so that one day our patients can finally get the gold they deserve. Um, and I would put it uh, you know, quite bluntly, which is that when you have a condition where the median survival is less than two years um, and you have a drug for that condition, you need to aspire to improve overall survival. Or if you want to use quality of life as an endpoint, you need to do it in a very rigorous way um, with very little uh, censoring and a whole bunch of events. And um, I don't want to say any more on that because I'm going to step on somebody's toes here. So I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on to the FDA approval of the week, which is nivolumab 
for small cell lung cancer that's progressed on two prior lines of therapy. This is based on a response rate in the Checkmate 32 study of 12%. Now we need to be really clear here. This is not an approval for small cell lung cancer for nivolumab. Nivolumab is already approved for MSI high small cell lung cancer, okay? This is an approval for MSI low small cell lung cancer. For every approval in the future, we need to separate MSI high, where it already has approval from MSI low, okay? And so we need to know what the response rate is in the MSI low population because we already have a path to giving checkpoint inhibitors in MSI high. You have a 12% response rate here. Um, I think different people can disagree about whether or not that is the kind of response rate, um, you know, that really is transformational, and I'm well aware that it's not often you even get a 12% in relapse small cell. Okay, so it's you know it's it's it certainly is it is some response rate, but I think there's some problems with this approval. And here's the biggest problem: we already have press release results from Empower 133. Empower 133 has met its co-primary endpoints of OS and PFS in the first interim analysis. This is a randomized control trial in frontline small cell, cell lung cancer that shows that atezolizumab plus chemo, which is carboitope, improves survival over carboitope alone. We have the press release. We don't have the paper yet. Um, this will certainly be a regular approval if it's true, if overall survival is improved from the addition of immunotherapy to um, standard of care chemotherapy in small cell lung cancer for many patients, which is carboitope. That will certainly lead to a regular approval. Here's what I find interesting. That approval is coming very swiftly. And these data for nivolumab, this single arm data, has been known for quite a while. Let me, I looked through this a little bit. Patients enrolled on the nivolumab study, this Checkmate 32 study, between 2013 and 2015. The database was locked March 24th, 2016, and the Lancet Oncology paper where these response rate was known was published in June 28th, 2016. Two years, four months, and 24 days later, the FDA gives an approval based on these data. What is going on? For two years, four months, and 24 days, there's been nothing. Now there's an approval based on the data that's, that's two and, almost two and a half years old. Okay, um, just, just as the randomized control trial data is coming um, for atezolizumab. Uh, I hate to say it, but this approval smells as if it is the absolute last moment by which an accelerated approval for checkpoint inhibitor can happen in this disease setting before a regular approval happens, which will make it very difficult for an accelerated approval to happen in the exact same setting. Um, small cell lung cancer. Uh, secondly, for all the people out there who say response rate speeds drugs to market, where have you been? Where's the speed? We've had two years, four months, and 24 days where we've had this data. We've known this data exists, and now we have the approval. So for the people who say response rate speeds drugs, I'd say you kind of lost two and a half years or kind of unexplained. Um, the next thing I'd say, the median survival in that nivolumab data is about five months. Um, small cell lung cancer is unfortunately a highly lethal disease, okay? Um, it's also, unfortunately, very common it's about 15% of all lung cancer, which is the most common cause of cancer death. Um, you don't need uncontrolled studies here. You need randomized studies. You could have done several randomized studies. You could have put five randomized studies in the time you were sitting on this response rate data. And of course, the FDA is not at fault here. You know, they don't submit the data. Well, no, 
The FDA cannot be at fault for the timing. They didn't submit the data. But the FDA can be questioned for the fact that they're allowing uncontrolled data to lead to approval when we already know phase three data is is here. It's, it's practically in hand. So I think this is a very questionable approval. I think um, one wonders what the real motivation was. One hears the shot clock winding down on an accelerated approval in this space. Um, and one sees this data used for that approval. I want to know what the response rate is in MSI low small cell lung cancer, um, likely in the Luis Diaz paper, um, very little small cell lung cancer was MSI high, so likely that response rate is probably comparable to 12%, but it would be nice to state it explicitly um, what exactly it is. And the other thing I want to know here is why we have to use uncontrolled data when it doesn't speed drugs to market, which it didn't in this case, and when we do have randomized data, and when randomized data is really, it really ought to be the default. All right, so that's all I have for the week's news. I could go on and on and on and on and on, but I think you're getting sick of that. And now we're going to turn to my interview with my guest, Dr. Andre Vandross. I'm joined here in my office via a complex uh, web of computer wiring with Dr. Andre Vandross. Andre is a clinical instructor at the University of California, Los Angeles. He practices in Santa Monica, California, and Torrance. He considers himself a community oncologist, though he is closely and deeply embedded in an academic network. And full disclosure, we attended medical school together. Andre, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. So when you thought that someday you'd give the plenary session, is this what you had in mind? <laughs> the difference is not... <laughs> it's not what I had in mind. The difference between this plenary session and the real plenary session is the audience. We have a much larger and uh, more important audience than the real plenary. Oh, and, yeah, that's very true. Uh, well, I don't broader, know if it's true, I, but I can. it's aspirational. We can hope it's true. <laughs> we can hope it's true. Um, the plenary session is, uh, is it the creme de la creme of the meeting for you? Is it your favorite session? Um, actually, no, I, in the meetings that I've gone to in the past, in the recent past, actually, I've actually enjoyed some of the smaller sessions. Um, the plenary sessions I feel are akin to going to, a, I mean, they are indeed a large lecture. Mm -hmm. Um, you mostly looking at the presenter on the monitor, even though we're in the same room, <laughs> right, uh, with him right. Or her. but often very distant. Um, They're just a speck in yes, the distance. So you look at them on the monitor, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's one of those things where you probably have, or you've probably heard a lot of buzz about the paper before even going in, probably heard a lot of the highlights. Um, it's I see it as one of those opportunities. You go see the person uh, responsible, the scientist, the physician scientist responsible for the work in real time. They get to field some questions and that sort of thing. That's nice and all, but I like a more intimate uh, setting. I yeah, I, th I think it is a bit, a bit distant. They're very choreographed. They're very rehearsed. They're not going into it uh, in the heat of the moment. Um, they've planned what they're going to say. They stick to the script. Um, and uh, it's not often that I hear a um, analysis immediately after the plenary session that I find meets my criteria of actually giving me a sort of useful takeaway and actually hitting the paper hard uh, for both the strengths and the weaknesses. Um, so I think it is a, it's a tough session. Uh, but uh, you must agree about one thing, which is that the plenary session is where you go to learn about the new miracles, game changers, revolutions, and cures. Surely that's the place you go for that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the only place to go 
to hear things like that. Let me ask you about that kind of language. We hear more and more of this kind of language in oncology. Uh, It seems like every day I open up my browser or my email and I learn about new Miracles Game Changers home run. Is this kind of language appropriate or uh, let me put it to you a different way. Um, What percent of this language do you think is actually appropriate and what percent do you think is a stretch? I think I'm only willing to say <laughs> that a small percentage of the language is actually um, appropriate and maybe accurately appri- uh, applied. Um, sort of getting a handle on or thinking about when it's used, it's obviously used to signal something. We're signaling something to patients um, in a really broad way. We're letting them know that something different is on the market, something new is available to treat their cancer, to make them live longer. I believe that these are expectations coming in, but certainly when the, um, uh, the new medications, new therapies, new interventions are adorned with this type of language, um, it's important to realize that we're sort of heightening expectations for sure, to be sure. And um, and is that challenging um, in the community practice that you get a patient who comes into your office um, with very heightened expectations or, or uh, you know, and, and how do you navigate that? A lot of times people come in with the brand name drug written down on a piece of paper. Really? I've had people mm-hmm. for whom a diagnosis was made, a treatment plan established, and when I present the... Um, so when I present the treatment plan, they go home, I'll get a phone call back, and they would have seen a commercial for the game-changing uh, medication. Why didn't you bring that up? Did you leave it off on purpose? Um, is it not available here? I see. But um, sometimes, so you, sometimes you might not have brought it up uh, for the simple fact that although the drug um, may have um, significant efficacy uh, for some cancer conditions and in some situations, it may be entirely inappropriate uh, for the situation for which the patient um, finds themselves in your office for. Is that correct? Abs- absolutely. And so navigating that discussion, um, I have to be careful and make sure that I'm clear that it, yeah, indeed it isn't because I wasn't aware of the, the, the therapy, but if, um, so I can think of one case in point, um, thinking about Opdivo or Nivolumab for non-small cell lung cancer in a breast cancer patient. Mm-hmm. A, uh, excuse me, a, 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 right. a, a breast cancer breast patient came and asked for it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Interested in immunotherapy. And, um, Correct. And is that is that a is that a tough part of the job to tell somebody that um, immunotherapy might not be right for them? Uh, yes and no. Um, I actually welcome cha- you know any challenge in terms of establishing a diagnosis or coming up with a treatment plan and helping patients navigate the entire process. I actually I don't know. I sort of take at least in my opinion I take to it. And, um, and you take pride in um, how you do it. I do. I do. And so to me, it's just a matter of education, mm-hmm. walking them through, taking the time that's necessary, especially up front, because, you know, obviously there will be a lot of questions up front um, to decide whether or not to uh, move forward with treatment, how that's going to be done, where it's going to be done, all of the details. Mm-hmm. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk to you about another forum where medical science, medical data, medical evidence is increasingly discussed. I'm not talking about the plenary session. I'm talking about medical Twitter and oncology Twitter. 
Um, <laughs> I, I see you around on Oncology Twitter here and there. Uh, you can be quiet some days, but some days you're a little more vocal. <laughs> For long stretches, yes. For long stretches. So, you know, what what brings you to Oncology Twitter? Why are you on there? I actually found it to be a really, really efficient way of getting information, uh, being made aware of uh, what's hot, <laughs> what's changing the game, or what is proposed to be changing the game. Um, and it allowed me, especially during fellowship, uh, sort of to be ahead of the curve. You know, you, I see something on Twitter, I go and ask, oh, what do you, what do you think about you know, fill-in-the-blank therapy? Right. And the response is, what are you talking about? And who are the, who are the people you're following from whom uh, you feel like you're gaining the value from? So, uh, well, obviously, you know, besides you, um, I follow And, of course, lot... I, listeners should know I paid you to say that. Right. <laughs> quite a handsome, right. quite a handsome sum, of, sum money. of money. Right. Um, uh, so, honestly, just like a wide variety of... Academics of, or community of doctors? Acad or, yeah. Um, I think all of the above, because what happens mm -hmm. is, is I uh, will start following uh, an academic and during the course of a debate, um, that's how I pick up new uh, people to follow. It's sort of no, no, it is focused, but on the other hand, I sort of follow my nose. Um, to whoever whoever I think is saying uh, some some interesting things. So so you raise this issue, and this is what I kind of wanted to to get to. Um, you've told me privately, and I hope you don't mind me sharing with the listeners that <laughs> that some, Well, of course, I I do record all our conversations, so I can easily just, just cut to the it's audio. The, uh, I'm, I'm the Michael Cohen the of, of this relationship. I'm the Michael Cohen, so you should rest assured that uh, there there are tapes. <laughs> there are tapes. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you've told me that sometimes you're watching debates on Twitter and you feel as if some of the participants are not acting in good faith. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, admittedly, it's it's obviously difficult to discern. You, ha you only have a limited number of characters to have such debates, even in real life when people are at, um, um, at a disagreement or contentious regarding a specific issue. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I can't read into their intention. However, there are some scenarios, I guess it's best to use a specific example. So let's take prostate cancer screening, for instance. Right. Um, so, so when I find myself involved in such debates from time to time, <laughs> from time to time. Absolutely. So the particular issue that I wonder about sometimes is when, uh, where things seem to get stuck is if you're, if if you're for more careful, thoughtful approach to prostate cancer screening and that it's more about education of the patient, making sure they understand the risk benefit, uh, mm. or excuse me, the benefit and harm balance. Uh, profile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you want to engage and in shared decision-making, in other words. Shared decision-making. And then on the other side, the response is an anecdote about the African-American patient who presents with metastatic cancer. Mm -hmm. The debates are largely regarding data that has been accumulated by uh, populations that are are uh, mostly European. I don't understand how all of these things are not on the table uh, when having the discussion um, and using an anecdote to to push the because we know that it, when we're talking about a screening program, we're talking about largely healthy people, all comers, right. and are we going to impact? An basically an entire population of people um, for a net benefit. 
Right. Um, and, and one of the things that I find disingenuous about the particular debates on screening is people who want to debate the position that we ought to do this screening test don't want to engage with the data, but rather often rely on the argument that the person who wants to um, engage in more shared decision making or think about the balance of the harms and potential benefits a little bit more carefully, they kind of make the argument that that person doesn't really care about reducing the mortality of prostate cancer. That to it's me is disingenuous. Yeah, it's it's really unfair. It's difficult to navigate. And even, you know, I'm young in the field. I actually where there is a sound argument to be made for or against, I want to hear it. I absolutely would like to hear it, like to walk through it. And then because these are these are things that I take into the uh, into the exam room with mm -hmm. me. And I have these discussions and I say, here are what people are talking about. Here's the data. Um, and then we try to talk about what it means for the patient sitting in front of me. What What are the most interesting things about oncology Twitter in your mind? Is it the debates? Is it the sharing of information? What is it? Oh, oh, absolutely. All of I mean, all of the above. It's hard for me to sort of pick any one thing. So I actually, again, this is something that I bring into the exam room, and I and I, I tell patients, especially when I first meet them, they're coming to UCLA. Um, as you mentioned before, I see patients in both Santa Monica and Torrance. Um, when patients come to our Torrance location, they may be a little bit dubious to sort of like, you know, what they know of uh, UCLA is that it's in, you know, the main campus is in Westwood. I tell them, it's like, look, we're, you know, we're all oncologists that work for, the, for UCLA. Um, we have quite a bit of cl clinical trials going on. You'll have access to some of those clinical trials here in Torrance. And, and I actually talk to them about the fact that I'm on Twitter keeping up or, um, or a part of the way that I keep up with things that are new and some of the issues surrounding screening, interventions, and treatments. Um, you know, Twitter is an important part of what I do. I'm actually sort of getting that out there um, um, to patients themselves. Let me tell you something that I heard recently. Um, in one of the middle of these Twitter debates, I heard someone say something like this. Uh, You're entitled to your opinion on this, and I'm entitled to mine. Mm. What do you think about that argument that uh, in biomedicine, um, that this is really just a matter of opinions, that you know you have your opinion about how to interpret the data, I have my opinion, and, and who's to say whether one opinion is better than the other? A sort of relativism about evidence and about data and trials. Is that, is that right? I've been walking away from that position for several years now, and I mean that in all sincerity. I, not just in biomedicine, but in life, um, I know that it seems like an easy thing to just sort of say that actually I think we say we agree to disagree, which is sort of in the same vein. We agree to disagree a little bit too quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I think that especially in biomedicine and oncology specifically, um, we should be trying to get at some version of the truth because the reason why we can, because I can think of one scenario in which, um, I can have my opinion, someone can have um, uh, have their opinion, and the outcomes are similar. But if we have different opinions and the outcomes are different, we need to know why that is. Mm -hmm. um, I need to know that when, like if my parents get ill, if they get cancer and they are being treated, um, they're back on the East Coast. If they get treated, I want to know that they're going to get similar care. I know that that's generally actually not the case, but I want to have the idea 
that um, they're going to get clo- you know close to similar care no matter where they go. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we say things like you're entitled to your opinion, I'm entitled to mine. I don't know. We're I, we're not working hard enough collectively to try to get at what that what that uh, ultimate truth is about what what we should be doing or what we should be offering. People. Right. So I guess I. Um... I guess a couple of things that makes me think about is that, um, and you and I would agree that, um, you know, while it is the case that there are definitely situations in oncology that are in the gray, um, where we don't know the best answer, um, there are some situations that are black and white, and there are some situations where it's really a dark gray, and we should all kind of see it as dark gray. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some rules to how to interpret clinical trials. There are some precedents. There's some standards. Um, Mm -hmm. There is room for interpretation. Um, but uh, part of the thorny work of academic medical oncology is engaging in the debate that shapes how trials are interpreted. And right. we should be able to reach some sort of collective consensus about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel that too often, um, you know, there's a big thumb on the scale in terms of how we interpret those studies, uh, which are the companies that stand to reap tremendous profits from certain interpretations over others. There are uh, clearly some endpoints that matter to patients in cancer medicine. Um, I think about overall survival and quality of life for patients. Patients want to live longer or feel better. Um, mm-hmm. yep. we, we also have some other endpoints that we talk about a great deal in oncology, uh, response rate and progression-free survival. Um, mm-hmm. We talk about them in a lot of different malignancies. How do you think about response rate and progression-free survival? Um, how do you discuss those endpoints with patients? So I, when I have these discussions with my patients, I try to put it in some sort of context. So if I'm going to bother bringing up response rate and progression-free survival, I, tr- I use it in the context of, of if let them know if there's early data regarding a specific therapy that... Uh, that um, that's qu- not quite ready for prime time yet. So if a patient starts ask, you know, f- from what we did, had discussed previously, um, if someone, if a patient is asking about immunotherapy, um, and I happen to know what the response rate is based on, you know, phase one, um, phase two trial, and it's not quite ready for their particular cancer yet, then I'll put it in that context. Mm-hmm. But when I do try to educate patients about what they're hearing on the news mm-hmm. about progression-free survival, overall survival, I just ask them in plain English what their goals are, um, and I try to tie it back to those terms. So I say, you know, when we evaluate clinical trials, we look at something called overall survival and progression-free survival. I leave out the response rate initially. And so I asked them, I said, you know, when you come to me, I mean, I guess it's sort of leading them, leading them to the answer. But I ask is sort of like, I assume that when you come to me with a a diagnosis, you're expecting that I'm offering something to you that's going to help you live longer. And we're going to minimize um, any suffering that you may have as it relates to your cancer. And they, you know, they universally agree um, that that is the goal. Then if we're happen, if we happen to be dealing with a therapy that has been approved based on progression-free survival, I make it clear that the aforementioned overall survival endpoint had not been met. 
Hmm. Now they do. Uh, a lot of times I get, uh, I seem to get affirmation that they understand the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not always sure that it gets internalized mm-hmm. because in the end, you know, um, they have a diagnosis of cancer. Cancer is really scary. And thinking of not doing a treatment um, would probably be really, really scary too. And, but you, but know, you think- feel it's your, it's your obligation, perhaps even your duty uh, to, um, try to articulate as best you can what has been shown in terms of what endpoints and what hasn't been shown. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't see an alternative. These things have to be spoken in plain English. Um, people, you know, uh, engaging in these discussions, I know, obviously, they can take a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial consultation, you know, I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have an you know, 45 minutes to an hour initially, Mm -hmm. but I sort of play with the patient encounter a lot where I come in and I ask them what they already know about their diagnosis, if they've had their biopsy, their imaging. I try to have the encounter led with questions and so that I can weave in what our goals, uh, well, again, eliciting the goal from them and being able to create realistic expectations for what the therapy uh, could potentially bring so i I just i just it just never occurred to me that i wouldn't have to talk to them about these issues yeah and and i uh, about them i um i feel very similar to you in terms of i go to great lengths and great pains to um as best i can clarify the distinction between what has been shown and what we merely hope uh we achieve and we we don't know for sure and Mm -hmm. um i find progression-free survival a very difficult um endpoint to yeah. really explain to people. And I, I kind of yeah. say that, you know, one of the things that this endpoint is, is um, it's the time until your tumor uh, gets more than 20% larger than the smallest it ever will be. Uh, and in other words, 20% tumor growth from the nadir. Um, it, it, it's, it's the time until the tumor gets 20% bigger. Um, mm-hmm. Are you going to feel bad at 20%? Um, maybe. But maybe not. Maybe for some person, right. some people, you'll feel bad at 110%. Or maybe you won't feel bad till 160%. So that the, right. the arbitrariness of where we draw the line for progression does not always go hand in hand um, with um, the patient's symptoms and how they feel. Um, Absolutely. And, and yet... Um, you know, who wouldn't want a therapy that will delay the time until tumors get bigger? I mean, that sounds intuitively appealing, um, but mm-hmm. realizing that it's arbitrary. And then the other thing I like to say um, is, you know, measuring a tumor uh, on a CAT scan, it isn't like measuring your height against the wall. It's a lot more like measuring a cloud between your fingertips. pointing. You, <laughs> right. know, your, yeah. you know, there Good is a point. bit of measurement error there, and that's been shown, you know, very clearly in work by um, Ian Tannock and colleagues called The Use and Misuse of Waterfall Plots, where he literally gave mm. the same scans to, to different readers, and they scored um, they scored uh, the, the tumor changes differently based on who was looking right. at it. Um, so I think, um, I think it's a very challenging uh, situation we're in, uh, and it's certainly not infrequent. As, as you know, more and more cancer drugs are coming to market uh, solely based on response rate and progression-free survival. Um, often we don't get, as uh, you know, work that I've done shows, that even years later we don't get uh, trials that actually clarify what these drugs do for survival or quality of life. And I think that makes, makes our jobs a little bit harder. It does make it harder, and then it also, but and that's why... It- 
because I'm on the ground now, d- working with patients, um, trying to lay out what some of these terms are, trying to lay out what their goals for treatment are. And then sometimes when I see discussions regarding the, I don't know, sort of poo-pooing or not thinking it's relevant, almost I get the sense that it feels that it's not relevant to actually get the answer. How long, how much longer are people actually living oh, I from see. a given therapy? So you're, you're, you're I, find, talking about, I find that odd. You're talking about that that there are some people um, who are vocal saying that it really doesn't matter. Measuring OS doesn't matter. That bothers you. Right. Yeah. Because I thought that, I mean, because if I'm claiming, so if a patient is coming and their expectation is that they're going to be living longer because of the therapy, but the real answer is that we, we're not sure of how long the therapy. Right. It behooves us to at some point health. measure that and actually see if that's a hypothesis that's true or not. I don't see any way around not at least making the attempt, doing the <laughs> doing a thought experiment about it, doing the power calculation to determine is this actually feasible, mm-hmm. not just sort of reject it out of hand. Right. Uh, that's something I struggle with, and I struggle with a lot in, in debates, as, as you know. Um, <laughs> and I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about hype in the beginning of this uh, miracle mm-hmm. game changer revolution cure. Um, I just point out that, uh, you know, a few years ago, um, uh, 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 Matthew Ebola and I, uh, we looked at drugs that were hailed as miracles, game changer, revolutions, or cures, um, right. and then we followed them up many years later. Uh, um, and one drug in particular, I think of, was hailed by many things. It was called a miracle. Um, you know, now three and a half years later, uh, there is still no credible evidence that improves overall survival, uh, despite the fact that trials have been followed for further right. years. Yeah. And so, you know, is it even possible that a drug, I mean, you know, there can be a legitimate disagreement about whether or not we, how often we should be using this drug in what setting, but, but can we at least agree it fell short of the miracle standard? Um, you know, with three and a half years of follow-up with multiple clinical trials, there is not a shred of evidence the drug improves overall survival in any setting. Can we at least say, you know what, that's just not good enough to be called a miracle? We should be willing to say that so that we can move on to the things that will, in, in, you know, down the road that are viable to be called miracles. You know, everything in de- everything's not going to be a matnib, um, uh, you know, all these all these therapies. But um, I, I know, would someone say that that bar is too high? Um, I would say that it, it, it's not a question of whether the bar is too high. It's just, again, is it actually allowing this individual patient to live longer? And um, because that's that's really what their question is, live longer, live better. Yeah, so I think you know you're putting it very well, and and this is something that I I uh, spend a lot of time um, you know engaging in this in this process that you engage in, and I think um, as you put it, I think you put it very well that there is really no substitute for I think practicing oncology in 2018. I wanted to ask you about um, clinical trials in oncology. Um, sometimes I read the results of clinical trials published in top medical journals, and I see that novel drugs that often cost uh, a great deal of money, over $100,000 per year of treatment often, um, are tested against established drugs. But one of the things I notice is that sometimes they're not going up against what you or I are actually using in the clinic, but they're going up against the straw man, the weakest drug that is available and perhaps a drug that's not really used that often. Um, When you see these trials, how do you interpret them in your practice? 
it's the, the only way to, I don't know, for personally, and I, I, the only way to do it is to continue to say, I'm not sure what the right answer is, <laughs> because you get a new trial, and let's say, because obviously it's most difficult when a patient has heard of this new trial, and then you have to painstakingly explain. Because I think one good example is um, treatment of CLL. Ibrutinib, chlorambucil. Chlorambucil, correct. Yeah. And and so if if I'm asked about that, I was like, look, uh, look if you if you go to me, you go even on main campus here at UCLA to Westwood, you go to USC. I don't know that you would find many oncologists that are using chlorambucil to treat their patients, save for the individual, very specific circumstance. So using this combination uh, in terms of is it better? Because I was saying I I actually don't have that answer. Uh, I don't believe that it was answered with the trial that's being reported. Right. And um, I just want to read the letter to the editor that was sent by Jeff Sharman and colleagues in the New England Journal um, that I just pulled up here uh, uh, while you were talking. Uh, mm-hmm. While I wasn't ignoring what you were saying. No, I was listening to what you were saying, <laughs> but I was, I was looking. But look, I, but I think it really res- it, uh, hits the point you're, you're making, which is it is not surprising that Berger et al. report positive results in the study by Brutinib as initial therapy for patients with CLL, the Resonate 2 study, a randomized trial of a Brutinib versus chlorambucil in older patients. Chlorambucil has served as a competitor comparator in trials of bendamustine, alimtuzumab, ofatumumab, obinutuzumab, and longer durations of progression-free survival have been reported with each agent. In addition, these trials have shown longer durations of overall survival with the use of ibrutinib and obinutuzumab. We reviewed our experience in the CLL disease registry. This prospective observational registry conducted from March 2010 through January 2014 involved 1,494 patients with CLL in the U.S. We observed that only 40 out of 889 patients with CLL, or 4.5%, receive chlorambucil monotherapy as first-line therapy. And then mm. they conclude, because of the superiority of alternative first-line regimens and the infrequent use of chlorambucil monotherapy, we do not believe, sorry, we do not think that chlorambucil monotherapy should serve as a comparator regimen in future studies of CLL. And it sounds to me like that's that's like what you're saying, too. Yeah, it's just, I... I... <laughs> Because and then that's why that's why I think things can come across as a little c- cynical when I see the debates um, on Twitter mm-hmm. um, regarding um, de- designing trials in this way. Because mm-hmm. it's sort of like, I mean, if 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 a local community or the national community or even sometimes a worldwide community is doing one thing, and then a trial is done, not trying to get close to what is considered pretty standard, then people are going to become cynical about what the goals are. Right, and I think um, I think that that puts it quite well. Well, Andre Vandross, I uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule uh, to to come on to the plenary stage uh, here on sure. plenary session. Uh, will you be back? This is the final question. <laughs> Absolutely, I had a good time. Okay, great. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this show and you like this podcast, uh, please go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. Uh, It means a lot. Um, Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Um, or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts, questions, topics you want to cover, let us know. We'd love to get some feedback. Uh, Plenary Session uh, owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, uh, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.